0: Thank you, it is uh, a real joy and honor to be with you. Um, grateful to be in Australia. I, I shared this morning and last night that I have a lot of love for Australia. I, when I was 12, my dad, who was a psychology professor for many years, had an opportunity to do a sabbatical here in Australia. And we were really hoping to move for six months and be with him. Unfortunately, the calendars didn't line up very well, so I was gonna have to repeat sixth grade, which I didn't want to do at the time. <laughs> and so he came on his own, and Australia really embraced him with open arms. And when I, but we did have a chance to come for about a month and travel most of the country, actually, and it was really breathtaking. Um, I fell in love with your musical instrument of the Aboriginal people here, called the didgeridoo, which you know. And my dad, as a Christmas present, brought me back a didgeridoo, which I still have in my living room. And I actually still play it. I have, like, zero musical ability, so I play it very poorly. But it has a way of centering me and calming me, which, which, which I'm grateful for. So, I just a little bit about myself. I um, lead an organization called Sojourners. Uh, well, I really co-lead it with the founder and president, Jim Wallace. And I'm the executive director. Sojourners is a Christian organization, ecumenical, so we have lots of mainline Protestants, lots of evangelicals, lots of Pentecostals, lots of Catholics who are committed to advancing justice and peace and really believe that a commitment to justice is part and parcel to what it means to follow Christ. And so we have been working for almost 50 years to articulate the biblical call to justice, and to try to help Christians put their faith into action. And so I'd love for you to learn more about us. You can go to sojo.net, and uh, you can sign up for our free newsletter. i brought a couple of issues of the magazine, which I'll leave uh, here, and you can ch- check out the magazine as well. So I am, you know, my tradition is a African-American Baptist tradition. So I was ordained in the same denomination uh, that Dr. Martin Luther King was a part of. It's called the Progressive National Baptist Church. Um, and I come from a biracial background, so my mother's black and my father's white. My parents made the very controversial decision to get married in 1968, the same year that Dr. King was assassinated. And it was actually the same year that interracial marriages were made legal all across the United States because of her Supreme Court ruling. And so my parents instilled in me a deep and abiding belief that we are all made in the image of God and that it was a part of my faith requirement to help advance the unfinished business of the civil rights struggle. And so that has always been a part of my DNA, and I'm grateful to share some reflections on some of the things I've done uh, in in that context. But as a part of uh, my tradition, we don't believe a sermon is a monologue. It is meant to be a dialogue. And so we have a tradition called call and response, and what that means is when you hear something that resonates with your spirit, yes yeah, right, you say yeah, you say amen, right? Now, I know that might not be the Australian way. So, if that's a little too much for you, then you can do what's called a holy head nod. Just you know, <laughs> kind of nod your head and smile and that way I know you're listening and you're with me. So I want to tag a title onto this message. It's time to get healed. It's time to get healed. Now, I told you this is going to be interactive, so I want you to turn to your neighbor and ask them a question. Say, neighbor, how is your body feeling today? Now, I hate to cut off these conversations, (laughs) but... I don't know if you felt that that was an uncomfortable question or not. If I had asked you to ask your neighbor, how are you doing today, that would be a very natural question, right? But when you ask, how is your body doing today, it's a little bit more personal. And we're going to talk a lot about the body, the body of Christ today. Because the Apostle Paul compares the body of Christ to the human body. And we're going to reflect on that this morning. So I'm going to share with you first... Our scripture for today, it is coming from Paul's the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians, um, if you have a Bible and want to turn with me to it, I certainly welcome you to. But I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 26. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary... Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers all parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all parts are honored with it." The word of the Lord. I've been really alarmed by the rising degree of polarization that has taken place in my home country, the United States. But this has actually become more of a global contagion. We look at the way that Brexit has torn apart Great Britain. Polarization is on the rise all across Western Europe and in many other corners of the world. And unfortunately, some of that polarization has seeped into the very church itself. We, you could argue, are more divided as the body of Christ than we have been in a long time. We're divided over doctrine, particularly in relation to homosexuality. This is an issue that is dividing the Methodist church in the United States or globally as we speak. We're divided over whether the gospel actually has something to say about justice, which is a little odd to me, I admit, particularly when I read 2,000 verses in the Bible (laughs) that talk about God's concern for the poor. Some of you may have seen or heard about a letter that was signed by 4,400 pastors last year, authored by a guy named John MacArthur, that basically makes the case that a commitment to justice is antithetical to the gospel. There are divisions in the body of Christ. And those divisions, I would argue, damage the very witness of the church. Sadly, in the United States today, we have reached a point where for the first generation, so the millennial generation is the first generation that is now predominantly non-religious, compared to 78% of Americans over the age of 70 who identify as Christian. Now, I know some of the trends of secularization have been going faster in Australia and some other parts of the world, but we are starting to catch up. And when you interview young people in the United States, when you do polling of them about why they're leaving the church, they say primarily because the church is not representing Christ very well. There was a survey done in 2004 by an organization called BARNA, and they asked non-Christians how they view Christians. And the three most dominant adjectives that non-Christians used were that Christians are judgmental, they're hypocritical, and they're homophobic. Now, these are not exactly the the ways in which we best brand ourselves as Christians, right? This is not what's going to attract people to the love and grace of Christ. And in the United States, Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, are starting to become known more for what we're against than what we're for. They're starting to become known for the people we hate or the people that we shun rather than the people that we embrace and that we love. Things have gotten even worse in the United States since 2016 where our election further polarized American society and the church. You may have heard the statistic, but 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. What is often not reported is that a third of self-identifying evangelicals in the United States are people of color. They're black, they're Asian, they're uh, from Latin America, they're Hispanic, and they voted the exact opposite. And so clearly there is something going on, even within evangelicalism, that there's a very different set of perspectives and opinion about our politics. The, The kind of unconditional support of white evangelicals toward our current president is starting to further the damage of the witness of Christ. And I'm not saying that as a partisan statement. I'm saying it because we have to be, as a church, committed to be the conscience of the state, not the master or the servant of the state, but to be the conscience of the state. This is literally uh, borrowing from a quote from Dr. Martha King. And so, in these divisive moments, the Apostle Paul has a great deal to share with us. Now, you could tell me better than, than, than certainly... I would know to what degree there is division in the Australian church. But I believe that Paul has a message for all of us this morning. Now to understand the depth of Paul's words, we must understand the context of what was happening in Corinth. One of my favorite preachers, uh, his name is Freddie Haynes, once said to me, anytime you take a text out of its context, it means that you can be conned. As ministers of the gospel, we have a responsibility to place the text in its proper context so that we can really understand what's happening. It's like trying to understand Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, which is a very beloved speech in, in America, without having any understanding of the system of Jim Crow segregation that was discriminated against African Americans at the time. The speech doesn't make sense. Well, we can't understand the Bible unless we put it in its proper context. So I'm going to try to do that here as we look at the city of Corinth. So Paul is hearing distressing tales of moral laxity and deep divisions that are taking place within the Corinthian church. The Corinthians were mostly Gentiles, and they're seeking Paul's counsel and intervention because they still see him as the father of the faith. Paul arrived in Corinth early in the year 50 C.E., and likely stayed there for a year and a half. So he actually spent a significant amount of time there compared to some of the other places he ministered to. Corinth, which was located 40 miles southwest of Athens, was known for its great wealth. It was known as a place of hedonistic pleasure and ostentatious wealth. But behind this wealth was pervasive and severe poverty and a culture that often ignored and abused the poor. I don't know if this sounds at all familiar a little too familiar in the United States in in many respects. Corinth was able to become such a booming, wealthy city because of its strategic location as a meeting point of shipping lanes between the east and the west. By the time that Paul wrote this letter, Corinth was a commercial center with a population of roughly 600,000 people. Corinth had become a byword for vice, to live like a core was a slang word for debauchery. To make matters worse, Corinthian society was riddled with competitive individualism and idolatry, which had spilled over into relationships within the church itself. Feuding groups were arguing over doctrine and arguing over which personality to follow. Again, may sound familiar. Um, Of course, not here, but maybe other places within the church. (laughs) The Corinthian church created division and rancor out of their diversity, rather than helping to create unity out of their diversity. Corinthians argued over church conduct, worship, and the nature of resurrection. Into this polarized atmosphere steps the Apostle Paul, offering one of the most poignant metaphors in all of Scripture, where he compares the church to the functioning of the human body. Now, I don't know if you've really kind of stepped back and thought about it, but the human body is truly a miracle. I don't know, anyone in the medical profession or a nurse here? So I admire you. I have my, many of my closest friends are doctors and physicians. I've learned a lot more about the human body, not just because of what I didn't pay attention to in school, but because of a recent injury. So about five years ago, I was coming out of church with my family, and my older son at the time who was five years old, literally wandered into the street and almost got hit by a car. And like any father would, I lunged into the street and yanked him back to save his life and ended up throwing out my back in the process. Now, I, at that point in my life, thought I was invincible. I was an athlete my whole life. I ran track all the way through college. I never thought that there would be something that could hold me back physically. And so I was stubborn. Instead of going to physical therapy, I didn't and waited two years before I finally got to physical therapy because I kept re-injuring my lower back. And in physical therapy, I learned that everything is interconnected in your body, that I could not repair my back without strengthening my flexibility. I couldn't repair my back without strengthening my core. And so through that process, I was able to recover and was able to have a much healthier back. This is just one illustration of just how interconnected we are as people. Because the church and our nations and our world function like a human body, whether we like it or not. Our world is increasingly interdependent. The fires that are ravaging New South Wales right now is an important illustration of just how interconnected we are. That those fires are being made worse because of the impacts of climate change. Many of the hurricanes that have affected the United States have been made worse because of the impacts of climate change. And so, truly, the church and our nations and the world function like a human body. I believe that in this text, the Apostle Paul offers us three important prescriptions on how we heal the divisions in the church, in our nation, and in the world. Paul calls us to protect the weakest members of our body, to embrace our interdependence, and to demonstrate equal concern for one another. So first, in verse 22, Paul writes, those parts of the body that seem to be the weakest are the most indispensable. Now, when I injured my back, it became clear to me that my back had now become the most indispensable part of my body, because without healing it, I literally could not walk. So I was completely debilitated, unless I focused on how to heal and repair my back. That's kind of the same way that we are called as Christians to care for and protect one another. That it is the most marginalized and the most vulnerable who are the very test of our our faith in many respects. Are we caring for them? Are we looking out for them? And I would even argue that they they should become the test of our politics. That the biblical test of our politics is how the modern day widows, orphans, strangers, and the poor are faring. Now, we can disagree on what's the best policy approach or prescription to help care for the poor and help care for the vulnerable, but we should all agree that that should be our primary focus, our primary priority. Amen? One of the things that I'm most proud of with our organization, Sojourners, is that we have done a lot of work to try to unite the church around a shared commitment to address poverty in the United States. We've also done a lot of work internationally, but To this day, one in four children in the wealthiest nation of the world grow up in the quicksands of poverty. We have been working to unite all the disparate parts of the church around a shared commitment to address poverty. Five years ago, there was a bitter debate in in our, our political system around how to balance our budget. And the government was planning to balance the budget by cutting programs that benefit low-income Americans and help people get out of poverty. They weren't touching the military budget at the time, but they were going to take huge amounts out of our programs that benefit the poor. We thought that that was immoral. And so we created a coalition called the Circle of Protection. And we united evangelicals, the National Association of Evangelicals, Mainland Protestants, the National Council of Churches. We got the the Catholic bishops involved. We got the Salvation Army involved. And those folks do not agree on everything, believe me. But they shared a commitment to protect low-income people in our budget and worked to convince both Republicans and Democrats that we have to form a circle of protection around those programs. And in the process, we're able to convince President Obama at the time and Speaker of the House, Boehner, to protect funding for those programs. It saved billions of dollars from being cut and was a testament to the power of Christian advocacy and witness when we worked together in order to protect the most vulnerable. Secondly, Paul then goes on to write, when one part of the body suffers, all parts suffer with it. In other words, no man or woman in his island. Our lives, again, are very interdependent. I don't know if there are any sports fans here. I've heard Australians are really into sports. Come on, I'm not alone. Like, come on. Yeah, right? Now, I'm not going to get a debate over which form of football is better, mine or Australia's. But I want to choose a sport that I think we can all unite around. So we call it soccer. You call it football, or at least global football. So you call it soccer, too. Okay. So soccer. Both of my sons play soccer, and I've had the pleasure of being their coach up until last year, and my younger son fired me. He basically <laughs> said, I've gotten to be too good, Dad. I think it's time that you hang it up. I didn't mind, actually. I, I was fine to retire, so now I've been a spectator. I'm really proud of both my sons, but my younger son in particular is <coughs> hyper-competitive, and he's also very gifted athletically. And he's learned some hard lessons, though, because even as the most talented player on his team, he's realized that he cannot win unless he plays with the rest of the team. If you've ever seen a soccer game at pretty much any level, even if you have the best player, if you aren't able to pass the ball effectively, you're going to lose the game. And so in the first couple of games, he was trying to be the all-star player and be all over the field and dominate the ball, wasn't passing to others, and lo and behold, they were losing consistently. And then there was a switch. <laughs> and he, I mean, I was encouraging him with this, but he, he realized the only way for them to win was for him to set up the other players and to work as a team. Well, this is the same thing that needs to happen within the church. We have to recognize that we have to work as, the, as a team in order to overcome some of the challenges and the injustices that we see in our midst. When one part of the body suffers, all parts are suffer, are, suffer with it. That means that if one part of the body is persecuted, all parts of the body are persecuted with it. If one part of the body is threatened, all parts of the body are threatened. If one part of the body is racially profiled, then all members of the body are racially profiled. Yes, this requires us to recognize that we are interdependent. I had an opportunity in the year 2000 to start an organization called Global Justice. And I started after spending some time in South Africa, uh, first in 96, I studied abroad there, but then I came back And I started hearing about the harrowing statistics surrounding the crisis of HIV and AIDS. At that point, a third of the adult population in South Africa were living with HIV and literally faced death sentence. And I was filled with righteous indignation because we had the treatments available then that were completely out of reach of the majority of the population. So the average South African had an income of less than $1,000 a year and yet A full year's worth of anti-AIDS drugs cost $15,000 per person per year. And so I came back and I started to advocate and I organized a network of college students around the country that started writing letters to Congress and started making phone calls and putting op-eds in newspapers to raise awareness and sound the alarm about the crisis of AIDS and call for bolder American leadership. We then got... in. Touched with a lot of other organizations, and we built this big tent coalition that included deeply conservative Christians alongside gay activists, alongside people living with HIV. And again, we agreed to disagree on a lot of things, but said, we believe it's a moral responsibility for the United States to help address the global AIDS crisis. Because of that advocacy, we helped create the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria in 2000. And then in 2002, played a key role in convincing the Bush administration to announce the biggest public health initiative in human history, called the President's Emergency AIDS Plan, or PEPFAR. PEPFAR has been responsible for funding 11 million people being on treatment today in Sub-Saharan Africa and the Caribbean. Literally reversed the AIDS epidemic in those parts of the world. And to me, it is the best reflection of Christian values and practice. To show compassion and a commitment to justice. To understand that if they're impacted by HIV, then so are we. Amen? Third, Paul reminds us that the parts of the body should have equal concern for each other. So what does this really mean to have equal concern for each other? But I would argue equal concern requires a greater commitment to be empathetic and a commitment to be more proximate to the other that's in our midst. There was a survey done a couple of years ago called American Values Survey, and it found that, so it basically asked Americans, who is in your close social circle? Who do you trust? Who are your close friends? And they found that 70% of white Americans don't have a single person of color in their close social circle. We have become very divided as a society. Even though we've overcome legalized segregation, we still segregate ourselves. And how can you have empathy for someone that you have no relationship with? At worst, you demonize the person that you have no relationship with. The gospel calls us not to build just to build relationships with our neighbor, the people living next to us. It calls us through the parable of Good Samaritan to build relationship with the other, the person that is different from you, the person that is not in your path. That is the call of the gospel. And so I know I, I actually learned through the Justice Conference that I had a chance to speak at uh, two days ago that an organization called Australians Together did a survey of uh, churches in Australia. And they found that 77, 76% of churches here have no direct relationship with the indigenous people of this land, the aboriginal people. How can you as the Australian church... Care for the most marginalized members of your society, which are often the aboriginal people, if you have no direct relationship with them. This is a call to relationship. Healing the body requires closing the moral distance between ourselves and the other. You, heard in, you might have heard in my bio that I had a chance for three years to work for World Vision, and I became a real convert to the power of child sponsorship as a part of that experience. What I love about child sponsorship is it helps to close the moral distance between ourselves and another child who may be living in a very different reality than what we experience in the United States or in most parts of Australia. We started sponsoring a child the same time, almost the same time that my son was born and our son, I call him our son actually, but our adopted son if you will, our sponsored child is also named Joshua. And so we've been watching Joshua grow up just as our son Joshua has grown up. And now we've been able to share with our son Joshua those experiences, and they're writing to each other, and they're building that relationship. That is just one example of how we can close the moral distance between ourselves and people that are, you know, nations away from ourselves. But we also have to do it within our own neighborhoods, our own communities. Amen? I don't think it is coincidental that... This powerful metaphor, comparing the body of Christ to the human body, is followed by one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture, in my opinion. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard this passage read. Apostle Paul gives his treatise on love in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, where he says that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Well, at the heart of healing the body has to be courageous and steadfast love. Where public policy fails, God's love wins. Where relationships may be broken, God's love wins. Where... Relationships have been damaged, where people have experienced abandonment. Ultimately, God's love can heal and repair. Now, I'm going to end where I started. And you can tell that I'm a little fixated on my back, probably because it's a little sore right now, after all this travel. So, after physical therapy, I, I kind of went into a, a season where I stopped doing my exercises. I got lazy. I kind of felt like, okay, I've arrived, my back is okay, I don't have to do this anymore. So I was picking up something, and my body had to do a violent sneeze. And it literally torqued my body, and I re-injured my back. It was very embarrassing, to be honest. I mean, how'd you, get, how'd you injure it? Oh, I, I sneezed, right? <laughs> and so I was just mad. I was mad at God. I was mad at myself. And I was like, this is it. I'm done. I finally relented and went to go get an MRI. And it turns out that the fourth disc in my lower back is degenerated. And I'm going to be living with this condition for the rest of my life. But the good news is that this doesn't have to be a permanently debilitating condition. I've gone back to physical therapy. I'm now doing the exercises every day. Praise the Lord, I did it this morning. And now my back feels stronger than it did for a very long time. Well, that is exactly what is required to truly overcome the divisions in the body of Christ and to heal the very body of Christ. We can't be complacent. We have to be resilient. We have to be diligent. We have to keep working at it, even if it's hard, even if it requires us to break out of our comfort zones. That is the call of Christ. Based on church, it is time to heal the body, not just your own, but the very body of the church, the body of your communities, the bodies of this nation, and the bodies of this world. If not us, the disciples of Christ then who will do this? Because we know that no matter the obstacles, no matter the resistance we may face, if God is for us, who can be against us? Greater is God in us than we can ever be in this world. We are made more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. So it is time to protect the most vulnerable in our midst. It is time to embrace our interdependence. It is time to show equal concern for one another. And in the process, I believe Not only will we heal the body, but we will start yanking pieces of heaven and bringing it closer to earth. Bayside Church, it is time to get healed. Amen.